Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2011 Tanner Lectures on Human Values, presented by President Richard C. Levin and Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, feature two lectures by novelist and philosopher Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein. In this lecture, Professor Goldstein addresses the topic metaphysics and literature as the second part of her discussion of the ancient quarrel between philosophy and literature. Works of imagination, I suggested yesterday, can't keep themselves in their emotionally blousy way from barging into the philosophical conversation, somewhat in the fashion of Alcibiades, that bad, bad boy of ancient Athens, barging into the sober discussion of Plato's symposium. Are you laughing at me for being drunk? He says as he sashays into the gathering, ribbons dangling from his silken tresses, and prepares to speak his mind about how infuriating it is to love the non-seducibly high-minded Socrates. You may laugh, he continues, but I nevertheless know quite well that what I'm saying is true. Plato doesn't gainsay that Alcibiades speaks the truth, but it's a truth that's disruptive of the project of philosophy as Plato conceived it. And sure enough, after Alcibiades has his say, and what a say it is, things at the symposium disintegrate <coughs> quickly. Everyone except for Socrates getting plastered and passing out. Plato often refers to poets as divinely drunk stirring us to the depths with their irresponsible profundities, unable to give us any account of how they arrived at these profundities or what they might even mean by them. How can such no accounts be trusted? So Alcibiades drunkenly proclaiming truths that are disruptive of philosophy is not a bad metonym for the way in which literature engages in philosophy. Literature is the wanton at the symposium. Still, yesterday I suggested that it's not altogether a bad thing, this wanton presence. Not a bad thing, morally speaking. It's true that imaginative works work on our normative attitudes by making us feel sucking us into their pathetic moralities. And you'll remember from yesterday, I'm using the word pathetic in this context not to mean pitiful, but rather to mean making us feel pathos. It's a respectable philosophical position associated with no less a figure than David Hume that in matters of morality, its emotions, what Hume calls sentiments, and specifically the sentiments of sympathy that make the moral difference. As quoted by Sophia, my erstwhile little philosophy student from yesterday, Hume held that reason in itself is perfectly inert. Hume, you know, thought that the mind works primarily by way of associations. And I hope that you won't forevermore associate his phrase about inert reason with the image of poor, compromised little Fiona. <laughs> or, or maybe I hope you will. 
But what about other matters of philosophy outside of the normative? Works of the imagination, even those that don't present as being particularly philosophical, not to speak of those that do, can't steer altogether clear of these either. And whatever philosophical content they have to impress on us, they impress on us pathetically. A work of the imagination will not yield its pathetic quality, or it is doomed. Nothing freezes the living marrow of a novel like the brutal onslaught of pure abstract ideas, dispassionately pursued. I always have to remind myself of that. A so-called novel of ideas, I happen not to much like that term, or a so-called philosophical novel, a little bit better, is one which, if anything, goes further in the direction of offending philosophy, deliberately biting off even more philosophical material and going over it with those wet emotions from which philosophy was specifically designed to keep us safe and dry. But it doesn't take a so-called novel of ideas to offend philosophy. To some extent or other, every imaginative work in pulling us into its world pulls us in not only to its pathetic morality, about which I spoke yesterday, but into its pathetic metaphysics, inducing in us a highly emotional sense of some subset of the following topics. The nature of one, reality, a feel for the world out there, whether, for example, it's encouraging of our human strivings, or utterly indifferent to them, or downright hostile, whether it's discernibly patterned, or an unintelligible hodgepodge, and a sense of the nature of two, the self, and what constitutes its identity, what makes a person the person that she is, the very substance of character, and a sense of three, human agency, of the scope, wide and neck to narrow, to non-existence, of a person's freedom to act, pressed in by the facts of his own disposition and his situation and accumulated history and a grappling to with the meaning of four, suffering, a topic which impinges much on our feel for reality, our sense of what it's all about, and whether it is such as to offer us any manner of consolation, and a sense, too, of the strength of five, human reason, whether it's up to the task of making sense of these other senses, and a sense of the nature of six, consciousness, the what is it like to be-ness of sentience, the inhereness of a lived life, which it is one of the primary preoccupations of the novel to represent, and much intertwined with a sense of the what is it like to be-ness, a sense, too, of seven, time's passage, of the quality of duration, the lapse and accumulation of time, in Henry James's words, which he goes on to identify as the stiffest problem that the artist has to tackle. And connected with time's passage, a grappling with the meaning of eight, death, of the struggle to get our heads around the one metaphysical topic that not one of us can altogether ignore, the incredulity aroused by the fact that we and those whom we love are subject to this radical ontological discontinuity 
And how can it be that such a thing as a person, that confounding immensity, that literature works so hard to make real to us, impressing us with a sense of its significance, its narrative and normative gravity, how can such a thing as all that <coughs> simply vanish from the world? Reality, the scope of reason, the self, consciousness, human agency and free will, time, suffering, death, this is the stuff of metaphysics. And here too, as with morality, a work of imagination can't help but stake a claim on some subset of these topics, not by arguing any truths about the world, as philosophy does, but by inducing us to feel them. Pathetic moralities, I said yesterday, are at least partly conveyed through the finessing of points of view, the artful suggestions that some characters are sympathetic and others are not. How are pathetic metaphysics conveyed? They are, like pathetic moralities, more insinuated than argued, often by way of such global stylistic features as narrative arc, the way causality and time function, the way pieces of the plot fall into place or don't fall into place, sentence structure and rhythms and repetitions and ellipses, the degree of authorial authority that's struck, that's something that we call literary style, the very music of its prose. By such means and more in imaginative works, pathetic metaphysics makes itself felt. And the pathetic metaphysics of some imaginative works are quite counter to our typical ways, ways of conceiving. They can bring about, pathetically, the sort of radical change in perspective that philosophy proper aims for, seeing the facts arrayed in an altogether different configuration. There are propositional statements that one can extract, but these propositions don't begin to do justice to what's aroused in us by reading writers like Beckett or Borges, Melville or Dostoevsky, Virginia Woolf, or Gertrude Stein, Kafka, or Thomas Mann, or Calvino, or Kotsea, or Kundera, or Proust, or Nabokov. What are aroused are ontological emotions. The world is fundamentally a certain way, and it makes me feel thus. Ontological amusement, ontological dismay, ontological bliss, ontological despair, ontologically aching, ontologically bereft. Ontological emotions are the metaphysical counterparts to the normative emotions I spoke about yesterday. So though Kafka and Beckett and Borges and Gertrude Stein may all provide a sense of the fundamental unintelligibility of the world, of the way in which it confounds our systems and lays waste to our organizing principles and concepts, those are merely propositions you can extract. Their pathetic metaphysics are entirely different from one another, these four brilliant writers, since the ontological emotions they arouse are so distinctly different, insinuated by their distinctive styles. It's not surprising that there are emotions stirred up by these issues of metaphysics, the ultimate nature of reality and all that since our emotions are typically aroused by an assessment of the way in which the object of our emotion, the thing we love or hate or fear or long for, impinges on our own personal project of persisting and flourishing, what Spinoza called our kunatus. The self's interested, interested encounter with both itself and the non-self, 
with what it makes of the non-self and its assessments of how its own welfare and design stand to be affected by the non-self. This is the breeding grounds of the emotions, as Spinoza so presciently saw. A sense of the nature of the world at large, stressing, say, the relentlessness of time's passage, or the disintegrating fragility of personal identity, or an intentionality shot through the fabric of the world that makes final resolutions inevitable, or a cosmic indifferences that make all consolations forced and false. Such large senses are apt to produce large emotions, which is just the sort of thing that art is always going for. Though aroused through words, the experience of a literary work can't be entirely articulated in words. Ontological emotions, being at least partly emotions, escape total verbalization. The effect is almost like music. It's philosophical music. The fusion of the emotional and the propositional is meant to be so thorough in a work of imagination as to get us to feel that the world is a certain way by stirring up in us the ontological emotions that would be suitable responses were we actually to believe that the world is that certain way, which a philosopher might very properly argue is to get things exactly backward. But this is art. This is the way art operates, pathetically. So Proust induces in us an ontological nostalgia, the product of his quivering sensibility crossed with Henri Bergson's metaphysics of flux, in which he had immersed himself. Some philosophical works release their ontological emotions into the disembodied atmosphere of the work, as Beckett does, as Borges does, as Virginia Woolf does, well, most especially in the waves. Others gather the ontological emotions up into the locus of character, the fusion of the emotional and the propositional playing out in the psyche and the drama of character. One might call this the character tuck, tucking a philosophical outlook into the whole of the character, knitting it into the peculiarities of individual temperament and individual history. So, for example, the import of Socrates' second speech in the Phaedrus, when he goes back on everything he had said in his first speech, serves as the propositional component of the ontological emotion, the ontological erotic ache that is gathered up into the character of von Aschenbach in Thomas Mann's Death in Venice into the death drama that is precipitated by Aschenbach's laying eyes on the beautiful boy, Tazio. The technique of character tuck might also be called flirting dangerously with the genetic fallacy. One of the standard fallacies gathered up <coughs> excuse me, into the stern catalog, catalog of argumentative fallacies against which philosophy warns us. The genetic fallacy, of course, has nothing to do with genes or DNA, but rather the phrase comes from the original meaning of genetic, meaning genesis, origins. And the genetic fallacy rests on assessing a philosophical position by its origins, including the reasons it would occur to a particular person, what it is about his character and situation that would draw him into this particular philosophical perspective. The character stuck, 
stuff. The character talk, together with the mechanism of character sympathy, of which I spoke yesterday, together work to make us feel the character's point of view. Or, on the other hand, to reject it for no reason other than how we feel about character. So, for example, good old Charles Dickens, being a writer with a well-developed sense of responsibility for reforming society, and hence a writer who works character antipathy very hard, as I mentioned yesterday, presents in hard times a Mr. Gradgrind, a retired wholesale hardware merchant and the leading citizen of Cokeville, who becomes a schoolmaster. Mr. Gradgrind believes only in facts and numbers. He's a kind of logical positivist of a crude sort who has so little use for what can't be quantified that he calls on one little girl in class as girl number 20. He's also, as you might suspect, a totally inadequate father to his two motherless children. When his favorite child, Louise, emotionally destroyed by a marriage her father had talked her into on statistical grounds, returns to confront him, entering his study where, quote, the deadly statistical clock ticks at its inexorable, inexorable pace, unquote, she tells him of her despair, reminding him that he had trained her from the cradle to be rational only, and then cries out, I curse the hour in which I was born to such a destiny. So much for logical positivism. There is, of course, much more to be said about these aesthetic techniques of insinuating ontological emotions and how these techniques are deployed in various works of imagination. I'm only touching the surface, but it's enough, I think, to indicate the way in which these techniques work to make of metaphysical considerations and positions things as much to be felt as to be thought, maybe even more to be felt than to be thought. And works of imagination are able to do this because metaphysical positions on such fundamental topics as the nature of reality, reason, the self, free will, consciousness, time, suffering, death, are, in fact, things as much to be felt as to be thought. When it comes to metaphysics, to our sense of the world at large, and it seems to me that the relationship between philosophical positions on the one hand and emotions on the other are not exactly as they are in matters of morality. I argued yesterday that normative emotions without moral philosophy are blind, whereas moral philosophy without normative emotions is, if not empty, pretty meager. Reason in itself is perfectly inert, and it's normative emotions that put some muscle into moral philosophy's conclusions. But when it comes to matters metaphysical, reason, it seems to me, is inert in an even stronger sense, not paralyzed in moving beyond its conclusions and stepping up into action, but paralyzed in reaching any conclusions whatsoever. Normative emotions may be needed to push us beyond moral reasoning, but without ontological emotions, there is no metaphysical reasoning at all. I'm meaning to be very provocative here. 
The late physicist, Eugene Wigner, who was my great privilege to study physics with at Princeton, had a wonderful phrase. He spoke of the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. And he asked us to consider what the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics is telling us about nature. I'd like to introduce the notion of the unreasonable effectiveness of ontological emotions in imaginative works. And ask what this unreasonable effectiveness is telling us about our metaphysicalizing natures, our attempts to get our bearings. What it's telling us, I think, is that despite the millennia of good, hard philosophical work pursued in the enlightened spirit of what I called yesterday epistemic democracy, metaphysics remains personal. Your metaphysics, how you get your bearings, is as much a matter of where your intellectual and emotional dispositions and personal history have deposited you as the arguments that you can articulate which is why metaphysics is fair game for works of the imagination, why works of the imagination are, are so unreasonably effective in insinuating their pathetic metaphysics. In saying that metaphysics is personal, I'm not saying that there aren't any truths in the matter in regard to these questions that metaphysics raises. Frankly, I have never been able to make any sense at all, at all out of a position that holds that there isn't any truth to the matter concerning, say, the nature of the relationship between the self and the body, and the related question of whether the self can survive the body's demise. It either does or it doesn't. And the difference seems to make rather a lot of difference, personally speaking. <laughs> and so it is, or so it seems to me, with all the questions of existence that metaphysics raises. But as Hume himself pointed out, Deduction, induction, and abduction, those techniques that further the project of objective knowledge, that is knowledge equally accessible to all who submit to its techniques. Deduction, induction, and abduction can get us quite a lot, but they can't get us everything. In particular, they can't get us what we need in order for us to get, in the most fundamental sense, our bearings. But we are not the sort of creatures, I'm still on the Humean page here, we are not the sort of creatures to forego beliefs in the absence of compelling reasons to believe. That's not going to stop us, never has. One's bearings must be gotten, one way or the other. In the absence to what I called yesterday philosophies factually insomniac and self-situating questions, we nevertheless arrive at beliefs beliefs that anchor our entire orientation toward reality. Hume's general MO, he employs it over and over again in his treatise on human nature, is first to demonstrate how some fundamental beliefs, say the belief in the uniformity of nature that underlies all of our scientific reasoning, or the belief in our belief in the existence of some self over and above the stream of one's individual perceptions, or our belief in an external reality that continues to exist even when we're not perceiving it, how all of these beliefs so firmly anchoring our outlooks can't be in any way justified. And then his second step, after the philosophical destruction, 
He turns to psychology, to the working principles of human nature, to explain why we nevertheless believe with a fervor, vivacity, he calls it, that skeptical doubts, no matter how compelling, can't touch. As he put it, nature, our human nature, is too strong for us. Where I want to depart from you, and I suppose it has everything to do with my being a novelist, is that I think the really interesting psychology underlying metaphysics lies not in what we share by the virtue of our human nature, the sort of habits embedded in human nature to which Hume likes to point, but rather in what differentiates between us. I say this probably has everything to do with my being a novelist, since if there's anything that characterizes a novelist's, novelist's sensibility, it is to be bedazzled by the varieties in human nature. And the varieties in human nature seem to be, to me, to be much in play in matters metaphysical. It's not only our shared human nature that's too strong for us, but our own individually variable natures. A great deal of our metaphysically engaged psychology is a psychology of individual difference with vivacious core beliefs, those providing the sense of where we are and what we are and what we are to do with what we are and what it is ultimately that's in store for us, veering widely from individual to individual, anchoring individual orientations in ways that arguments can't touch just as Hume argued concerning shared metaphysical commitments. It's in that sense that I mean metaphysics is and will always remain personal. There are temperamental differences at play, delivering up individually variable vivacious beliefs or intuitions, temperamental differences that are beyond the reach of philosophy itself to address, even though there is, in fact, no philosophy to be done regarding these sorts of fundamental, self-situating, ontological questions without the animating intuitions that individual temperaments supply, just as there is no science to be done without the animating, animating belief in the lawfulness of nature that Hume talks about. Listen in on two people who have vastly different intuitions, say, about the hard problem of consciousness, which is the question of how it is that this mass of slimy brain tissue sloshing about in my cranium has an inner life. And you'll witness different philosophical temperaments in play. It's hard for someone animated by one sort of intuition to wrap his head around what the other, animated by another intuition, is even saying. Why is he saying that? What is he, stupid? or disingenuous, or what? That's the sort of incredulity that the psychology of philosophical differences provokes. It's as if entirely different orientations toward the world are being invoked. It's as if entirely different orientations are being invoked because, yes, entirely different orientations are being invoked. The facts at hand are being configured in different arrangements by contrasting philosophical temperaments, which themselves consist of varying attitudes towards a whole cluster of issues of so fundamental a sort that they're proto-rational. You can't really argue them because one's attitude toward them defines what counts as a good argument for you. They define one's whole style of reasoning. 
One of the most provocative of issues around which different philosophical temperaments uh, revolves is the attitude toward the whole experience of being mystified, bamboozled, discombobulated. Philosophical problems are of a sort to induce a sense of mystification, at least initially. To understand a philosophical problem is to be, at least initially, flummoxed. For some people, the presence of the mystifying is emotionally inviting, thrilling, even titillating. They revel in it and frame propositions about the world that only increase the mystery. For others, it's a fact of life. They put up with it and frame propositions about the world that best accommodate themselves to it. For others, the idea of the mysterious is intolerable, and they frame propositions about the world that deny it. These contrasts and strategies are natural expressions of temperamental differences. Other issues that bring out temperamental and philosophical differences are the sense of what makes for the best kind of explanation, which is partly an aesthetic judgment, which means also an emotional one. Does a reductive explanation that leaves no wiggle room provide you the greatest sense of satisfaction? Or does it make you feel vaguely disappointed, like seeing the great Oz pulling levers behind the curtains? Is, it a, is a good explanation for you one which sets you off on curly cue ribbons of poetic associations? Another temperamentally sensitive question is whether you think there can be any explanatory holes in the fabric of the world, grouped contingencies, facts which are facts for no other reason than that they are facts. Or does this seem to make of the world an intolerable cheat to our intelligence, leading us gleefully down the garden path of intelligibility, only to deliver us smack into an explanatory brick wall? Again, there are elements of an aesthetic sensibility that seem to play a role in how one reacts to this question. And I think one can go through the whole history of philosophy, starting with Plato, sorting out various philosophers according to their proto-rational attitudes toward what Leibniz eventually dubbed the principle of sufficient reason, even though that intuition was in play long before Leibniz named it. Very much in play in Plato, not to speak of Spinoza. And speaking of Spinoza, what about the attitude towards the limits of human understanding? One might think, like Spinoza, that the fabric of reality is intelligibly complete, that there's an infinite web of explanations, and this whole web is itself self-explained, but that we, with our particular cognitive modules, can glimpse but a small part of it. Or this notion of there being reasons out there in the world which nevertheless escape human reason might strike you as profoundly irritating, an itch we can never scratch. It struck the logical positivist that way. Hume, on the other hand, was amused by unreachable itches of this sort. And how do you feel about certainty? Is it your holy grail, a source of chagrin when knowledge falls below the highest standards of indubitability? Or does certainty make you feel coerced and caged? Is vagueness a soft comforter you love to snuggle into? Or does it make you feel like you've wandered into a swarm of sight-obscuring insects or marched out into battle armed with a fluffy pillow? Certain, certainly, one's cognitive skills come into play here, skills that make for cognitive pleasures and cognitive pains. 
So, for example, does strict logical reasoning, seeing what follows from what, stimulate your pleasure zones? Or does it come unnaturally hard and send you screaming from the room like fingernails on the blackboard? Have you a mind that leaps among poetic associations? Or can you not distinguish a, between a poetic association and one of those fallacies enumerated in logic's blacklist? Perhaps the fallacy of weak analogy. But there are other aspects, not just those in our cognitive makeup, that go into the individually variable responses we have to these temperamentally formative proto-rational issues, all of them within wincing distance of that most sensitive issue of all, our limitations, personally and collectively as a species, not only in understanding, but in being, our attitude toward what lies beyond our control, if, that is, you are even of such a temperament as to allow for their being such things as those beyond your control. In short, it's the whole of the person, that unity of dispositions and experiences of sense and sensibility, the very complexity of individuality that novelists struggle to make real, who is brought into play in forming attitudes toward the self-situating, factually insomniac questions raised by such metaphysical topics as reality, the scope of reason, time, consciousness, the self, suffering, death. The philosopher Colin McGinn, in Problems of Philosophy, speaks of distinctive strategies that philosophers typically deploy in the face of philosophical perplexity. <clears throat> a perplexity that typically coagulates around certain philosophically problematic facts such as the fact of the a priori, or of meaning, or of free will, or of consciousness itself. Which last problematic fact, consciousness, McGinn treats as the paradigmatic philosophical perplexity. McGinn summarizes his four strategies with the acronym DIME, D-I-M-E, where the D takes the problematic fact and domesticates it identifies it with some nice housebroken facts. And I argues that the problematic fact is irreducible and indefinable and inexplicable. The M miraculizes it and says that it belongs to a different domain, a supernatural order of being. And the E simply eliminates it and says that it is no fact at all. I like this notion of different philosophical strategies very much. But I'd like to widen the array of strategies so that they take in, <clears throat> excuse me, not just professional philosophers, but all of us. Because we all do, one way or another, have our ways of dealing with philosophical perplexity, even if for some the preferred ways don't make them suitable practitioners in the profession of philosophy. Also, I'm interested in conceiving of these strategies in such a way so that they reflect on the underlying temperaments that operate, that operate beneath. So my list of strategies is somewhat different from McGinn's, but I really like the way he summarizes the different strategies with an acronym. I think that's very cool. And so I'm copying him in that too. I summarize my strategies, which are six, with the letters N-A-T-U-R-E. 
which if you are very quick, <laughs> you have noticed spells out, we're all quick, <laughs> spells out nature as in human. And it's sort of strategy of naturalizing. A naturalizer goes after philosophical perplexity with the intent of making it disappear. Philosophically difficult facts absorbed into natural facts, meaning those secured empirically by either straight observation or scientific explanation. So on combining under naturalization begins two strategies of domestication and elimination. And he says, actually, philosophers go back and forth between these two. Since these are both naturalizing moves, and the naturalizing temperament would be happy with either. Naturalizers are typically irked by philosophical problems. The idea of the incorrigibly mystifying tends to raise their hackles. And it's interesting how many philosophers are irked by philosophical problems. So consider the problem that consciousness presents. Why does it feel like something to be a working brain? How comes this pulsating mush in here to give me the world, or at least some subjective version of it? Consciousness presents, at least prima facie, a certain mystery to us, a mystery that naturalizers try to naturalize by either identifying mysterious facts, in this case the fact of consciousness itself, with purely natural facts. Nowadays, the naturalizing answer is usually put in the language of the hardware and the software of the brain. So, going the hardware route, consciousness is nothing more than 40 cycle per second loops of activity between the cerebral cortex and the thalamus. Or, going the software route, consciousness is a blackboard representation or a common short-term representation accessible to all the modules of the mind. Or, the naturalizer might go after the problematic by trying to eliminate it by way of natural facts. In the case of consciousness, a naturalizer might adduce linguistic facts and argue that it is, old, it is these natural facts concerning the ways that we speak that gives, give us the illusion that there is something called consciousness. Um, actually, I just had this discussion with the AI guru, Marvin Minsky, in a public domain in which he tried to convince me of this. I didn't buy it. In any case, However he does it, a naturalizer can't allow a mysterious fact to just lie there and be mysterious. Something has to be done about it, and done about it by way of the sorts of natural facts that we know about from either straight observation of the physical world or the extent of natural facts we've acquired about the physical world through science, like the 40 cycle per second loops of activity between the cerebral cortex and the thalamus. A lot of scientists are naturalizers, quite naturally, and a lot of philosophers are too. The second strategy, the A strategy, I call aestheticizing. I was just reading the collected letters of the novelist Saul Bellow, they're quite wonderful, recently published. Bellow was for decades fascinated by the anthroposophical writings of Rudolf Steiner. If you've read Humboldt's gift, you'll remember the Steiner fascination. In one letter to the British Steinerian Otto Barfield, Bellow writes, quote, there is the conviction that the law of conservation of energy is all a mistake, unquote. And then he adds in a parenthesis, this idea has too many poetic implications to be dismissed. This parenthetic, parenthetical remark wonderfully expresses the aestheticizing approach. 
Whereas a naturalizer breaks out in angry hives in the presence of what seems mystifying. An aestheticizer tends to revel in mystery. Mystery is a beautiful thing. It provokes an aesthetic response from those crying for such aesthetic responses. A view which opens out into even more mysteries more likely to be true by the aestheticizer's light. And the seductions of language, too, are apt to produce a sense of the true, a phrase of imponderable poetry will deliver more conviction than all the truth tables of propositional logic. For an aestheticizer, finding truth doesn't have the feel of cleaning something up as it does for a naturalizer, but rather it has the feel of a spilling over. Blunt logic can feel like an act of rudeness to an aestheticizer. And what has an aestheticizer to say about consciousness? What hasn't an aestheticizer to say about consciousness? Consciousness is what allows us to partake in the sublime. Consciousness is a sort of soul dust that swirls out from us to enchant all the world with our own phenomenology. Consciousness is the ambient world soul. Some of it suctioned off and partitioned into us who communicate with one another and the world soul by way of it. That spilling over of an aestheticizer can reach flood levels on the subject of consciousness. There are philosophers who are aestheticizers, though surely not among Anglo-American analytic philosophers. Interestingly, quite a few mathematicians I've known in my lifetime are aestheticizers, most especially if they're French. <laughs> you might think that a so-called philosophical novelist must be an aestheticizer, but that doesn't follow in the least. Just because the aesthetic takes precedence in her novels, as it must, doesn't mean the aesthetic takes precedence in her philosophical thinking. I, for example, am not, by temperament, an aestheticizer, though I often think I'd be a better novelist if I were. My tea is for theologize. Theologizers dislike the untidiness of philosophical problems almost as much as naturalizers do. Something has to be done with these mystifying facts, but, but instead of absorbing them into natural facts, they're absorbed into the supernatural, which is a super cleanup operation, with the mystifying features of our world reduced to just one mystifying feature, that all-mysterious God, which has an arithmetical advantage. And consciousness? Consciousness is the divine spark within each of us. It signifies not only the touch of God that brings us into being, but being the divine spark is what keeps us always in communion with God, that, that sort of thing. My U stands for unsolved. You might think this is a poor excuse for a strategy, but actually, unsolving is hard work in philosophy. What an unsolver must do is undermine other strategists' attempts to make the problem go away. An unsolver insists on the stubborn persistence of the mystifying fact, arguing either that it just can't be absorbed or that the reputed absorption still leaves the bulge of the mysterious in place, like the picture of the boa constrictor swallowing the elephant in the little prince. So, for example, an unsolver's work on the problem of consciousness 
consists in undermining all of the various naturalizing attempts to absorb the facts of consciousness. And an unsolver will also argue that the theologizer hasn't really offered any solution to the problem either by dumping it into the one mystery of God, no more than the wielder of the next strategy has, which is my R, and stands for reification. A reifier is totally against absorption, arguing that the mysterious facts constitute a separate domain of facts in addition to the natural. So, for example, when it comes to the problem of consciousness, a reifier offers a separate ontological category, disembodied minds, res cogitans, as a solution. Cartesian dualism is the reifying response to the philosophical perplexity proposed by consciousness. A lot of P's in there. So, we have N-A-T-U-R, and we now come to E which is to epistemologize. This strategy has affinities with the strategy of unsolving. An epistemologizer will, like an unsolver, argue for the fa failure of all the attempts to make the problem go away, to absorb the philosophically problematic fact into other facts, whether natural, theological, or metaphysical. Like the unsolver will insist on the defiantly mystifying nature of the problem, but an epistemologizer is different from an unsolver in maintaining that there's nothing inherently mysterious about the problems that just happen to stump us. They just happen to stump us because of the cognitive modules that we've been bequeathed. The philosophical interest shifts for the epistemologizer from the problems themselves to the cognitive equipment we bring to bear on thinking about these problems. If we want to understand these problems, then the best that we can do is to show how there is an unfixable misfit between what our cognitive modules are designed to do and the sorts of answers that would make these problems go away. <coughs> what philosophical perplexity signals, <coughs> excuse me, according to the epistemologizer, is that we are in the presence of a topic for which our rational cognitive apparatus can't do justice to the intuitions which we nevertheless have. So when it comes to consciousness, although it is a physical process, and an epistemologizer will certainly reject any moves on the part of an aestheticizer, a theologizer, or a reifier that says that it isn't, the cognitive means at our disposal for understanding physical processes are not of a sort for capturing why certain physical processes feel like something for those whose physical processes they are. Colin McGinn, who is an epistemologizer, writes that trying to explain consciousness as a product of the brain, even though it clearly is a product of the brain, is like trying to explain how you can, quote, get numbers from biscuits or ethics from rhubarb, unquote. So these are the six general strategies deployed by vastly different philosophical temperaments, of which there are many more varieties than merely six. Far more expressive than these general strategies are the individually variable intuitions that swell up out of our temperaments, anchoring our points of view, providing our orientation. Intuitions are the core beliefs we maneuver around. 
They are what allow us to get our bearings. For bearings we will get, one way or the other, we're not going to succumb to metaphysical vertigo. These core intuitions are the last things we would want to give up, although sometimes we do, under extreme duress. But in general, we judge the reasonability of other belief claims by how well they accord with our core intuitions. Such topics as reality, reason, time, consciousness, free will, suffering, self, death, philosophical topics that works of the imagination patheticize, attract a wide spread of individually variable intuitions rising up out of the proto-rational recesses of sense and sensibility, clustering around the emotionally fraught fault lines where the self contemplates itself in relation to all that is not the self. These core intuitions speak out of the deepest place of our individuality, and they're more finely attuned to our temperamental differences than the six general strategies that we reach for when we, in our individually variable way, do whatever it is that we call reasoning. Philosophy, as Plato conceived of it, was the attempt to subdue individual natures while we try to get in the most fundamental sense possible our bearings. It's not that Plato thought that we all share the same common human nature. Only some, those designated the guardians in his utopia, have the sort of nature that makes them fit for philosophy, able to suppress their emotion-tainted points of view and to allow instead that their points of view be shaped by the processes of reason, by dialectic. This is the basis of the noble lie of Plato's Republic, the populace being fed the fib that the class of guardians actually has a different metal gold, as it happens, mixed into their substance than do the auxiliaries who have a mixture of silver and the farmers whose substance is mixed with bronze and iron. So although we can't hope for unanimity, a point of view across the board, we can hope for it, on Plato's view, among <coughs> the philosophically susceptible. Since reality is one, the viewpoint that allows itself to be shaped by reality will be one. Spinoza works this Platonic proposition very hard, arguing rather wonderfully that to the extent that we are rational, which is what we ought to be, we will be so similar as to all that share the same identity. True philosophers are all but indistinguishable from one another. The psychology of individual differences can be subdued to the point of erasure. And to some extent, this proposition that the psychology of individual differences can be subdued to the point of erasure is still the noble lie of philosophical practice. It's noble because it promotes the necessary work of sifting through grounds and reasons, seeking the objective accessible to all and compelling to all, no matter their temperamental differences. But it's a lie, nevertheless. Works of the imagination call out this lie. The more aggressively philosophical they are, the more philosophical material they tuck into the deep pockets of character and induce in readers by way of emotions, visions of the world quite at variance with their habitual ways of seeing, the more shrilly they call the lie out. And whether this
this is the kind of answer that would convince Plato to let the poet back into the city of reason, isn't it all clear to me? I think it, that's probably put barricades against it. But nevertheless, as that him at the symposium once said, I think it's true. So that's my argument. But given my own philosophical convictions, I never feel right just giving an argument without arting it up a little bit. I'm trying to manipulate you guys with some emotions. A little story or something else. So I've got something else. In order to demonstrate the spread of core intuitions, how they vary from one individual to another, and the deep and emotionally alive places out of which they emerge, I've prepared a short audio performance piece, which I call Intuitions, and with which I want to end these lectures. Thank you. Stop believing in it doesn't go away. The concept of God is the way in which we understand the incredible fact that what cannot be somehow or other is. Do what you will. This world's a fiction and is made up of contradiction. There is no tribunal for knowledge beyond the natural sciences, matter and energy, space and time. This is what science explains for us. This is what is. Our physical reality isn't described by mathematics. It is mathematics. So we inhabit an abstract mathematical object. And this object doesn't exist within space and time. Space and time exist within it. We are deciphers of the heavenly scroll. To be is to be the value of a bound variable. Behind the cotton wool is hidden a pattern, and we, I mean all human beings, are connected with this. The whole world is a work of art, and we are parts of the work of art. We are the words, we are the music, we are the thing itself. When I embrace the universe, I feel it embracing me back. We must learn to live without the comforting illusion that we know anything at all. Reason. The eyes of the mind, whereby it sees things and observes, are none other than proofs. Reason itself is perfectly inert. Logic is inviolable. I cannot think myself outside of it and still be thinking. There are no sacred propositions. The so-called inviolability of logic is nothing but indolence, born of habit. There are truths that can't be expressed except by way of paradox. The opposite of a shallow truth is a shallow falsehood, but the opposite of a deep truth is another deep truth. Reason that leads one too far from common sense is probably hiding some mistake or other. 
I wouldn't step out on a bridge built of reasons, flimsy conditionals. Better to stay put on the terra firma of common sense. At least there's good company there. What is common sense but utterly common? And why should reality give itself over to what is common? Reality is too subtle for the coarse grain categories of common sense. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. And all our intuitions mock the formal logic of the clock. Time. The only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once. Time rushes on, impassive and unmarked. It's we who domesticate the flux, parceling it out into countable units so that we can situate ourselves within it. I am young and live in expectation. I am old and nearing the end of my days. People like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. I force myself to state, if only in one line of unwritten poetry, this moment. We think in eternity, but we move slowly through time. The past follows us at every instant. What am I? What is this self, if not the condensation of the history that I've lived from the moment of my birth and even before? Consciousness. For something to be conscious means that there is something it is like to be that thing. Something it is like for that thing to be that thing. Consciousness is a bag of tricks. The brain is a flim-flam artist. You are your own brain's stooge. Experience is never limited, and it is never complete. It is an immense sensibility, a kind of huge spider web of the finest silken threads suspended in the chamber of consciousness and catching every airborne particle in its tissue. I still find it hard to understand how anyone could argue that machines can't exhibit consciousness. Consciousness is the spark of divinity within us. Our creator's reminder that we are so far from being able to comprehend all that is out there that we can't even begin to comprehend what is within. It feels like something to be a brain, but why this should be so, no brain, at least not one of our sort, can fathom. Consciousness is a disease. Free will. My first act of free will will be to believe in free will. A stone thrown through the air would, if conscious, attribute its path to its own free will. We are those tall stones. I must believe in free will. I have no choice. The only free person is the one who lives constrained by reason. We can trace out all the complexities of the moral universe, but without the capacity to choose our decisions rather than have them be chosen, that moral universe is as barred to us as Eden, guarded by the flaming seraph. 
It is in the rare moments only, moments of being, that we encounter the unified self and know it in its state of absolute freedom. That freedom that is within me, no man can take away. It's the source of my dignity, my humanity. You may shatter my body, but the person within me freely condemns you and deems my enslaver more shattered than I. I am condemned to be free. Suffering. Let sanguine healthy-mindedness do its best with its strange power of living in the moment and ignoring and forgetting. Still the evil background is really there to be thought of, and the skull will grin in at the banquet. I don't know why we are here, but I am pretty sure that it is not in order to enjoy ourselves. Do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school an intelligence and make it a soul? I don't want more suffering. And if the suffering of children go to swell the sum of sufferings which were necessary to pay for truth, then I protest that the truth is not worth such a price. I would rather remain with my unavenged suffering and unsatisfied indignation, even if I were wrong. What presumption to think it incumbent on the universe to offer us any consolation for our troubled lives? I know that God loves me. And even in suffering, I will rejoice. The whole planet can suffer no greater torment than a single soul. The self. What is your substance whereof you are made that millions of strange shadows on you tend? Whatever else I can doubt, I cannot doubt the existence of myself. There is nothing in all the world I know with more intimacy and certainty. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other. I can never catch myself at any time, and never can observe anything but the perception. If anyone, upon serious and unprejudiced reflection, thinks he has a different notion of himself, I must confess I can reason no longer with him. I am a real thing and really exist. But what thing? I have answered, a thing which thinks. I have a body, and I cannot escape from it. That being the case, I would like to call attention to my problem. I can conceive of myself without this body. What is inconceivable is that I am this body and nothing more. That I am who I am is not only a necessary truth about me, but about the whole universe. One of the most misleading representational techniques in our language is the use of the word I. The self is a shadow cast by the grammar of the first person pronoun, I. And will the self that accompanies me everywhere accompany me past the door of death? Death. Death is a fearful thing. To himself, everyone is immortal. He may know that he is going to die, but he can never know that he is dead. It is a fearsome thing to love what time can touch. Death is unthinkable. 
How can that immense intricacy of teen reality that is a person, all that striving of becoming, simply vanish from the world as if it had never been? The wise man thinks least of all things on death. His life is a continual contemplation, not on death, but on life. Nothing has left us but death. We look to it with a certain grim satisfaction, saying, there at least is reality. There is the distinguished thing at last. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces fill me with dread. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2011 as part of the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. The Tanner Lectures are presented annually at select universities and were established by Obert Clark Tanner as a means of contributing to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. Rebecca Goldstein spoke on March 24, 2011 at the Whitney Humanity Center.